Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about technology, power, society, and what it means to be human in the age of information. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess. We're two PhD students with different backgrounds researching AI and technology ethics. In this episode, we have a panel discussion about decolonial digital mental health with three leading experts on the topic, Sachin Pensi, Moon Moon Dechowdhury, and Neha Kumar. Sachin is a PhD student in human-centered computing at Georgia Tech, researching the role that technology plays in addressing barriers that prevent people from receiving consistent mental health care. Moon Moon is the associate professor in the School of Interactive Computing at Georgia Tech. She founded and directs the Social Dynamics and Wellbeing Lab that seeks to develop technologies for improving our mental well-being. Neha is an associate professor at Georgia Tech and leads the Technology and Design for Empowerment Lab with a focus on the intersection of human-centered computing and global development. We were originally connected to Sachin, Moon Moon, and Neha because they gave a talk at our university, the University of Colorado Boulder, in our department, which is the Information Science Department, last semester, about a paper that they recently released with some other co-authors that's titled From Treatment to Healing, Envisioning a Decolonial Digital Mental Health. And once we heard them talk about the themes in this paper, we knew we had to have them on the show, and we were really excited to have this conversation with them. So that's one of the topics that we focus on in this episode, but we also just extract themes about decolonialism and digital mental health generally. As a note, before we begin, we did want to mention that this conversation will include sensitive topics around mental health. Um, And so please, listeners, uh, do what you need to in order to take care of yourself. And if that means not listening to this episode, then that's totally fine as well. Um, But without further ado, we wanted to dive right into this interview. We're on the line today with Sachin, Moon Moon, and Neha. Um, We're going to just dive into this conversation because we have a lot to cover today. We are going over decolonial digital mental health, and we're drawing a lot from a paper uh, that this team, amongst others, put out recently called From Treatment to Healing, Envisioning a Decolonial Digital Mental Health. And this project was led by Sachin. So we're gonna start with you, Sachin. What are we talking about here? What is a decolonial digital <laughs> I know, I know. mental health in the first place? I, I know, I know it can, it can be a mouthful, but I, I, I promise you that each individual word of that, that phrase is very, very important. Um, but to, to kind of um, to simplify it a little bit, if I could summarize it in three words, right? And if there's like three words that I want people to get out of, out of this podcast episode, I would say culture, power, and agency. You know, actually, maybe I should say those words super slowly in case people are like listening to the podcast at like 2x, 3x speed or something. But yeah, I think culture, power, and agency are, are the most important parts of this, namely the fact that there are cultural differences with regards to how we experience what's come to be commonly known, right, as as mental health, and that those cultural differences have intersected with racism, sexism, colonialism, these other prejudices and biases to disempower people from having agency over their care or being able to practice like diverse non-psychiatric forms or or clinical forms of care. I think one of the questions I have is, how is this different? Like, what is this pushing against in what currently exists in these spaces? Yeah, I I think that's a fantastic question. And I think One of the things that's important about it is that, as I mentioned, right, there are power dynamics embedded in how these tools are designed. 
So like Ramesh and uh, and Alabi talk about how like uh, for example, let's say you post something on Facebook, right? That indicates that you might be experiencing suicidal ideation, right? It's very likely that um, Facebook uses like an n-grams rooted algorithm to be able to predict that that's happening, and then without your consent, call like the police, call uh, do other kinds of quote-unquote crisis intervention that might actually be harmful for you, right? I think another thing that is happening currently in the state of digital mental health is that a lot of the classification tools that are used, like the PHQ-9, the DSM, they're used uncritically, right? They're used as a, okay, we have some kind of measure of, of mental health. And I think one of the things that we hope to do with this paper is complicate the idea that those, and then actually argue against the idea that those tools are like, end-all be-alls to, to even measuring just simple symptoms of mental health. Because as we talk about in the paper, like the ways that people express their mental health and the ways that they experience it, even the symptoms that we have are super, super diverse. You mentioned some classification systems of digital mental health. Can you give us a little bit of a 101 of what you mean by that? Yeah, totally. And I actually think Moon might be a better, a, a better person to talk about this first before I chime in. Sure, happy to. Um, so, you know, the historical backdrop, if you think about mental health, um, the historical backdrop says that a lot of the science that we know in this domain um, has originated in the Western world. Um, and the way this has happened over about the last century um, has been essentially through what is known as a diagnostic manual for mental disorders or DSM, um, which essentially identifies different sorts of mental disorders and says that this is a way to think about the specific condition. These will these are the symptoms that people experience and so on. Um, so a lot of the research that we see in digital mental health draws upon that classification system because that's that's what is out there commonly. Um, so if you look at algorithms that are built on, let's say, social media data, but based on smartphone sensing data or pretty much anything else that you see, even self-reported data, they essentially draw upon these classification systems. So the point that we are making in this paper is that essentially these classification systems um, advance a colonial view of how we think about mental health and how we think about extending care and treatment to those people who need it. And the argument we are making is that there is actually a lot to learn from other cultures and to think and go beyond sort of these colonized approaches of thinking about mental health and digital mental health and drawing upon the agency and drawing upon the cultural aspects that Sachin was mentioning earlier. So I'll stop there. Absolutely. And I think I can talk a little bit more about like the history of some of these classification systems, because I think I think that history is really interesting, right? So and we and we talk about this in the paper, right? Like mental health is seen as this like scientific, right? Like a, a very, very, and, and I, I, there is a science to it, right? There's like a huge field of psychological science, but concepts around this, this term, right? Mental health are often used as like a veil of scientific objectivity, right? So, oh, like, because we have metrics, clearly this must be objective, right? Clearly there must be objectivity. And I mean, there are full fields that argue against this, right? Um, but they're used to justify oppression, right? We can see this throughout history. So some examples, um, Brief content warning, we'll be talking about like slavery, racism, um, forced institutionalization. But yeah, so I mean, psychiatrists, right, during the Civil War argued that enslaved people escaping freedom were just quote unquote mentally ill, which was like a horrid take, right? Really, really racist. 
Um, but this, this writing was later used by colonial psychiatrists and, and was justified um, to create these racist constructs around what they call detribalization, which they then used to argue that black individuals were right, more mentally ill and, and linking that to violence, right? And saying that they are more violent. Um, and this was again brought back across, like also cited in the future um, by segregationists to justify segregation in the United States. And right, like these are quote unquote scientific classifications that are still, right, those biases are still a part of how we think about mental health today. So we talk about this in the paper as well. If you strictly use the DSM, right, uncritically, um, there's a bias towards diagnosing black men with schizophrenia um, because of this history of, of oppression and marginalization. Yeah, so I, I think that the, the actual constructs that are used around mental health have these biases, right? The classifications that are used embedded into them, but are not looked at as critically. And the, the power dynamics that underlie them are also not looked at as critically. And I'm wondering if we could just zoom out one more level of just talking about the history of health and colonialism, especially uh, going over some of the same ground, but like defining what colonialism is in the first place. Sure. So I think going back to what uh, Sachin said, right, it, it is about power fundamentally, and it's about histories of power. So how people have been um, subjugated by power and along different dimensions. Um, so some of the work that we do in my lab looks at health in different contexts, but um, there is a strong element of looking at the global south and what what does that do? So why why look at the global south? What is what is it that it um, presents in terms of just uh, histories of, of power and structural inequities that have impacted access to care? Um, and so that's that's where we're we're generally kind of coming from, looking at care, looking at access to care, looking at the care work that is done. And this is also something that Sachin has looked at. So care workers and um, and what they bring uh, um, and, and how they are impacted also by the care work that they do. And, and then if we take a step back, I think what, what's interesting is by looking at it from a decoloniality perspective, it lets us look also at the histories of, of that access to care and what that does. So in some sense, even, even thinking about it from the perspective of this method is an act of care, right, to say that, within the space of technology mediated care, we are now trying to see how we can um, bring access to more and more people. And this is, I mean, it's not it's certainly not just a few people, but really widely speaking, we are trying to see how technology can help in many different contexts. And going back to this, I mean, we've looked at digital mental health care from this conversation that we're having, but if we think about even other fields, um, looking and reassessing the ways in which we think about health, whether it's maternal health, like that's one of the things, that's one of the areas that, that we've looked at also more carefully, so maternal and child health. And there as well, the standards that are used, whether they're coming from the WHO or whether they're coming from just cultural practices, it will look very different when you're actually looking at how they're implemented in health interventions that might be large scale, that might be trying to assess whether this method is better or that me method is better. Um, eventually, I think the message is this, that we, we need to look at the past to understand what's possible for the future. And I think that's really what, 
to me, this work has been honoring that, that we need to look at vast knowledges, vast perspectives to be able to um, design responsibly for the future. Yeah, and I, I think you bring up a good point, right? Like, uh, why why use the word decolonial, right? Why talk about colonialism? And I mean, I, I want to be clear, and as we talk about in the paper, we don't see ourselves as, right, like engaging in a process of decolonization, right? Like we, our argument in this paper is that, and, and we believe it, that like real decolonization is giving back land to indigenous people, right? So we start, we, we cite the um, the even tuck paper in, in the, right, um, decolonization is not a metaphor. And we talk about how, like really de true decolonization is giving people, indigenous people back their land. Like that is colonialism. But I think what's really important for us to consider and, and what we do in this paper is like centering the coloniality, right? Like the, the, um, right, the propagations of the, like the history of colonialism and bias, centering those power dynamics and digital mental health tools is really, really important given the ability and the, like the prospect that digital mental health tools have to, as we talked about, cause Quite a bit of harm. Mm. I've heard us throwing around the phrase digital mental health a little bit in this conversation, and I think that you've all done a really good job describing what decolonialism, colonialism, and mental health broadly is in the context of this discussion. But I'm wondering, let, if we bring it back to technology, what do we mean when we say digital mental health? And I guess specifically using um, the language that was brought up earlier, what is technologically mediated care? So it's, unfortunately, there isn't an agreed upon definition. So let me preface my answer with that. Um, but normally what is accepted is essentially a very broad conceptualization that could mean technology mediating, technology um, uh, creating uh, the the, the point of care um, or technology helping people, you know, do something around mental health. So let me break it down. Um, so it could mean essentially that technology either helps people provide insights um, that may not be otherwise available. It could mean it augments people's abilities to understand their own mental health or as a caregiver to extend help to someone else. Uh, it could also mean that it fills in the gaps in our general understanding of mental health and people's experiences around it. And there are examples of research along all of those lines that we see so far. And the primary um, approach has been um, either uh, by thinking about new kinds of applications or tools to do one of these or one or more of these activities or thinking about sources of data that come from these different technologies and using them in the design of these tools that extend or help or support mental health care. Yeah, I think, I think that's a great, um, yep, super accurate. I think one of the things that's also important about what we do in this paper is that often when you hear these terms like, mental health technology, computational psychiatry, digital mental health, oftentimes they take on a very clinical framing. So anything from like digital phenotyping, doing public health, right? Like surveillance studies on what rates of um, depression or anxiety or different mental illnesses might be. We take a much broader framing, right? So we add like online support groups, right? As that being a part of digital mental health and how we understand it, right? Teletherapy, suicide hotlines. These are all ways that technology becomes a medium by which people are able to get care. So we include that in our in our broader understanding of what digital mental health is. 
And let's continue with uh, the paper. I was really struck by this primary contribution of three main suggestions for designers specifically. And you all list one, to center the lived experience of the potential users of their technologies. Two, to center the power uh, relationships that may underline the use of their technologies. And then three, to center the structural factors that may broadly influence well-being. And there's a lot there. Um, and so I'm wondering if we can start breaking that down a little bit. And the first question that comes to mind for me is this centering lived experience, um, because I think that lived experience has become uh, in vogue as a term for us to continue to talk about, you know, this human-centered design. And the question that comes to me and the question that I want to pose to you, and maybe Sachin, you can start, is who's lived experience? Um, like, where do we start? Which experiences are we trying to focus in on and perhaps why? Well, I, so I have a, a couple of different answers to this. I think that the first, the, a very simple answer is, I mean, we want to understand those experiences of those who are most marginalized, right? And in talking about this, I borrow quite a bit from the psychiatric survivors movement, right? So understanding for people, because I, like I mentioned, like throughout history, people who have experienced mental, mental distress, right? Mental illness have been super disempowered. Um, so understanding, right, how different parts of their identity are, and different dimensions of marginalization play into how they understand their mental health and like how they understand their symptoms and the kinds of care that they have access to. So that's, that's one part of it, right? But I think when we think of like, what does that look like very concretely? I think as Neha mentioned, we have to turn to history. So I think one of the things that's really cool that we talk about in this paper is um, Thomas Adoye Lambos work to um, create a new psychiatric system. So it's like, the, so the story is like, it's the late 1950s and 60s in Nigeria. Um, and Nigeria has just become an independent state. Thomas Adoye Lambo is a psychiatrist who wants to create a new um, psychiatric system in, at a place called Aro Mental Hospital, right? And, and it's, it's a tough job because um, there's a place called Yaba Asylum nearby where, I mean, there's lots and lots of news about how this has effectively been used like carcerally as a jail, right? So people do not want to engage with psychiatrists. They're mistrustful of psychiatrists, right? And I think one of the cool things that T.A. Lambo did was he allowed for patients to be treated within the cultural frameworks that they were familiar and comfortable, right? So he integrated community medical practitioners alongside European trained medical practitioners to have but, and, and like we talked about, right, those to have the kind of care that fit people's lived experiences of care, right? And, and I mean, uh, Matthew Heaton writes about this in his book that like, when this happened, like a lot of the European practitioners were quite uncomfortable with the idea of bringing in community medical practitioners, right? But they, it resulted in quite efficacious treatments for mental health. And in fact, Thomas Adoye Lambo and his work, like, I mean, it took center stage. He eventually ended up working at the WHO to try and center, right, his ideas around um, understanding lived experiences of care, particularly of those who are most marginalized. And I think, I think one of the other interesting things about this is that at the time he had a tough line to walk, right? Because he understood that like cultural differences were super important with regards to how people understood their care, right? Experienced distress. But the issue was that if he spoke really, really openly about them, there was this whole history of racism, right? In which British colonial psychiatrists said, well, if there are cultural differences, it shows, and of course this is super racist, right? The inferiority of people of color. So get to walk this tight line between like, how do I acknowledge cultural differences while also not playing into racist stereotypes around mental illness? Um, and I think, I think one of the things that was really awesome about how he did it is that he tied his research paradigm to the universe, 
universality of human psychology while also being considered of differences in illness experience, care, and, and marginalization. So on that note, one of the things that was really cool about um, our mental hospital was that when people could come in, there was no, like it was completely voluntary. You could leave anytime you wanted. There was no, there, like no incarceration, right? Like no punitive forms of care, right? It was completely up to the person when they wanted to take care, how they wanted to take it. And it was completely affordable too. They were not charged for the care that they were receiving. So to go back to your question, and I think, I think when we think about how to um, fit digital mental health care to people's lived experiences. I think there are lots of fantastic examples from history, particularly thinking about those intersections between right marginalization as well as people's individual different diverse ex experiences with care and with illness. So when we're talking about centering lived experience, I think there's different ways of centering lived experience, right? And oftentimes we say that we want to do things in the service of people who are marginalized or communities that are marginalized, but there's also the question of how, and I think method is really important. So we talked about the method of uh, decoloniality here, but even if you look at design methods, right? Or look at participatory methods, it's really important to think about whether we are disempowering or empowering the people that we're working with. And this, you know, to people who are working in the space, I think this is just, this is an obvious sort of uh, thing that comes up over and over again, but I, I just wanted to pull that out, that there are, um, the way that we, we talk about these things are in terms of asset space and deficits focused approaches also, right? So when we're looking at people as being marginalized, we can also often be looking at them as having lack or suffering from lack. So what is missing? And often we're not looking at what they have. And I think what we're trying to also bring out in, in the paper is that there are assets that come from people's own sort of uh, position in the world, right? What, what their histories might be, what their cultures might bring. And so how do we actually honor those assets? How do we take assets-based approaches to designing um, for and with, uh, as opposed to thinking about, oh, this person needs my help and I am going to go and, and, and save them? Thank you for bringing that up, Neha, because I was definitely going towards the question of how, and I completely agree that the historical context definitely informs how we can try to solve these issues or at least confront these issues in the modern day. But I also imagine that a hospital in the 50s and 60s functioned a whole lot differently than a machine learning algorithm on a digital platform does today. And so I'm wondering, I guess, how, for lack of a better word, how do we center the lived experiences of individuals in a vastly scaled, large, complex digital system like the modern day internet? Yeah, I think, I think that's a fantastic question. So the way that we break it down in the paper is we talk about like personal interface design, right? So let's say you're in distress, right? And you start to like, search symptoms on Google, right? Or you start to look for helplines, right? Online, or you like tweet, right? Or you post on social media or Tumblr, right? Like what is your experience when you do that, right? And, and how is it understood? Like, like you said, by these algorithms, we also talk about, and I'll go in depth to all three of these, right? We also talk about it in the context of classification and measurement, right? So let's say algorithms are out there, right? Like the one we talked about quite earlier that uses um, like passive sensing data or social media data to predict your mental health, right? Or, um, or right, and then using these kinds of classifications to do so, right? Whether you have depression or, or anxiety, right? Also, right, like privacy, right? And what does that look like in the, in the prediction of these states? So we believe that for each one of these topic areas, right? And each one of these applications within digital mental health, there are ways that we can 
fundamentally like either foreground and deter those power differentials that exist under that underlie some of these algorithms. So going from the first example, right? So like when you search for like mental health stuff online, right? Currently, like let's say you search for depression on Google, you may, if you're going, if you're searching on your phone, you might get the PHQ-9, right? And we talk about this in the paper that like Tom Osborne at Harvard with Arthur Kleinman, fantastic researcher, looked into how the PHQ has been designed and found that like it was not very sensitive to cultural nuances among a certain community of people in Kenya, right? So the symptoms that you put into Google, right, you may not be diagnosed with depression, even if you're experiencing, right, what others may call a depressive episode because of of your identity, right? So an alternative may be being more expansive with regards to the kinds of resources that someone gets um, and, and the kinds of symptoms they get or the kind of symptoms they that trigger the these resources when, when someone searches on like a search engine, right? So warm lines, identity-based resources, like peer support groups, there are much more ways, there are significantly more ways to practice care than the current interfaces of, of social media, of Google, right? Like of different search engines provide. So that's that's one of the things that, that um, one of the ways that we've thought about it. Sachin, would you mind saying what PHQ-9 is? Oh yeah, totally, totally, yep. Um, so that's the patient health questionnaire. It's a nine question um, questionnaire, ask you questions like, um, have you been sleeping, right? Have you been feeling down or, or depressed lately? And it's used to quantify the extent to which people have depressive symptoms. And if they get a like a moderate to high number, they say, okay, well, a person may have moderate to high depression. You should probably go get this diagnosed by a mental health professional. I'm curious about this question of metrics and metrics of success, yeah. uh, because we know that you know, in Silicon Valley or otherwise, there's still this question of like, well, how do we optimize for this, right? So like we're on board, we're like, yes, everything in this paper, absolutely. Are we optimizing for a specific metric within algorithms or do we need to tear down the entire algorithmic system? Like is, I assume there's some sort of middle ground here, but I'm actually gonna throw to Moon Moon if that's all right. Um, Because Moon Moon, I know you've done a lot of work in this algorithmic and also uh, mental health prediction space. Uh, gosh, I have a very long form answer, but I'll, I'll try to I'll try to keep it short. Um, there are many problems, first of all, with the Silicon Valley approach to digital mental health. Um, you are absolutely right that there is an overemphasis on metrics, but unfortunately, some of those metrics have nothing to do with, uh, many times, have nothing to do with mental health at all. Um, for instance, sometimes it's optimized for number of views or how many times somebody opened up the app or did something on the app, which do not necessarily indicate what mental health is really for that person at that point in time. But that aside, I think um, uh, what we are envisioning here is to rethink the design of these algorithms. Um, A lot of these algorithms kind of take questionnaires like the PHQ at face value. Um, And that's what a lot of them evaluate the success of those algorithms on. Um, We are not saying that we do away with those approaches, but we are saying that we need to think critically about which questionnaires we adopt and for who, and how do we evaluate those algorithms. To give you an example, there is so much of push on taking some of these algorithms that are built on uh, tools like the PHQ-9 and maybe using it, you know, in populations across the world or even like, you know, populations who may not necessarily be who are represented in the training data of these algorithms. 
what we are saying is that we need to think deeply about the appropriateness of these scales in those populations. Maybe there are other lessons that we can draw upon that are more contextual and sensitive to the to the cultures, to the to the identities of those populations that need to be part of this algorithm design. Um, and I think that currently we find is not happening. Um, the, the field of digital mental health has too many examples of bad algorithms. Like I was saying, a lot of them do not even measure anything about mental health at all. And I think we need to take a step back and think about even when we think that we are using a scale to evaluate them, um, is that the right scale or is that the right metric? for the population who we are trying to extend help on. The good news though, is that with the internet, despite all of its problems, we also now have an opportunity to learn about these diverse experiences of these populations. The internet is providing a platform so that those otherwise marginalized populations can now have a voice. So I think we have a real opportunity to connect more deeply with those marginalized populations and see what is it that we can learn from their experiences that they're describing on the internet and incorporate that knowledge in the design of the tools that we build. And I want to just actually piggyback on that a bit and say that it, it comes back to methods, right? So how are we learning about the voices that haven't been heard? Um, and I, I think there's increasingly effort within the field of HCI to look at different methods. And I think there's, you know, orientations around design, like the uh, approach to design justice, or if we think about the community-based participatory research, like these are all uh, methods that increasingly we're, we're hearing about. And I think there is a need to focus more on different types of methods and different qualitative, quantitative design to, to, to figure out how we let these um, voices surface. Yeah, and, and, and like Munmun said, I'll add on to that. I think that it's, right, so um, going back to that study from Tom Osborne, I think one of the cool things that they did is they used the, the, the depression scale, right, the PHQ-9 as a jumping off point, right? So they asked them the questions and they said, are there things that are missing, right? Like the, the kinds of things that we are very familiar with, right, in, in, in qualitative methods, right? They were able to find symptoms that better tracked what depression was to this community of people compared to what the PHQ had. And like when one said, I think that like given the access to data we have, given social media and given the internet, there's this awesome opportunity to be able to right, foreground and center these kinds of marginalized experiences of distress. So rather than sticking to right, an archaic scale that was made in like the 80s or 90s, we can ask open-ended questions about distress and like cluster free text expressions of how people experience their distress and then measure like efficacy based on right improvements in those clusters rather than some old metric from like 20, 30 years ago. I would also quickly add that there is already a sort of a movement in the in the mental health and psychiatry psychiatry fields where um, researchers are arguing to move away from something like the DSM, the, the, the Diagnostic Manual for Mental Disorders, um, because it is just so um, uh, inflexible and doesn't capture the range of experiences that people have. So give you an example in simple lay terms. If you take two people, both of who have a diagnosis of, of schizophrenia, 
it is totally possible that their experience of the illness are widely different and they wouldn't you wouldn't see a lot of commonalities across their experiences so the movement actually is arguing um and then this is sort of complementary to what sachin was describing is to think about um other ways to capture those range of diverse experiences instead of essentially siloing people's experiences into these rigid inflexible uh, sort of buckets or categories like we today understand to be schizophrenia or major depression or bipolar disorder. So on the one hand, I hear that modern technology and the internet affords this opportunity for us to really understand the lived experiences of people of all different kinds of cultures. And then on the other hand, I hear that these algorithms are trained using bad data they are trying to quantify things that are inherently unquantifiable and inherently qualitative and inherently local about someone's personal lived experience and might be harming people with Western centric views that are not holistic of their lived experience. And so I, I feel this tension between the benefits and the negatives of digital mental health generally, regardless of whether we're talking about decolonial. And so I'm wondering, this might not be a fair question, but maybe this is the, the pessimistic tech ethics academic in me coming yeah. out. Is it worth it? Is, is technology more helpful or more harmful when it comes to mental health? I think that you're right. I think that is a core tension that all people in digital who work in digital mental health with have to contend with every day, right? Because I mean, so for example, right, like going back to history, right, like Foucault talks about how uh, the chains of the asylum, right, are replaced with what he calls, I mean, he, he basically says tech, right, he, and surveillance, surveillance tech, right? The surveillance, like technology that enables the surveillance and control of human bodies is what he called it in the asylum, right? And the concern, you're right, is that like different forms of tech data, like technology mediated data, right? Like social media, predictive and predictive algorithms, passive sensing, facial recognition, right? It's really scary to think about the kinds of harm that these sorts of things can be used for, right? Like we talk about this in the paper, right? Like after mass shootings, right? After two of them, right? Trump, like the proposed um, that they like, that the government could use, um, or at least someone in his administration had proposed to him that you could use like passive sensing data to create like a giant registry of people with mental illness, which is really scary and has like the completely like incorrect link um, of between like mass shootings and violence and, and uh, mental health that underlies it, right? Which we talked about in the paper comes from like colonialism, right? And comes from the globalization of the asylum system. Um, but that's the thing, right? Like there's a lot of harm, right? And you're completely correct in that. But I also think that, I mean, anyone who was on Tumblr, right? In like the 2009, 2010 era, or maybe, maybe that's just me, right? knows that it, it can be really empowering, right? To be able to find spaces where you can express your mental health, right? And find others who have like experienced the same kinds of like marginalized symptoms that you have, right? And our argument in this paper is that, right? Yes, you're right, that that tension exists. And part of the responsibility, right? Of designers, right? Of algorithm designers, researchers, is to build in those protections to ensure that people are being, are able to get right, the kind of community, right, and the kind of like collective that you see from people being able to meet other people who have similar symptoms without, while minimizing that risk of harm, right? So, and we talk about this right in the paper, right? Like building in like accountability, social transparency, explainability. We also talk about the fact that like, I mean, it's super important and, and this is what I know Moon Moon has thoughts about that, 
there come in regulations, right, on like how mental health data can and can't be used, right? Because I mean, right now, digital mental health is kind of like a wild, wild west when it comes to data protections, right? Some things may apply to HIPAA, other things may not apply to HIPAA. I think those regulations are important, but I also think that we can't always be dependent on state power to protect us from those forms of oppression. So it's a it's a combination of both designing tools that by design make it very, very difficult for like data to be extracted that can be that that can harm us while also having like regulations other forms of legal mechanisms that um, keep that data from being used for harm but you're right i think that there is a fundamental tension there and i think that's sort of a responsibility right that is something that we take on being in this field of thinking about what the, what that tension might look like and the harms that that are associated with it yeah i uh, i'm on the same page as sachin um it is a double-edged sword, um, like in many contexts, technology is. And the field of digital mental health is very nascent right now. Um, and this is the time for us to think about how do we ensure that what we are building up to actually outweighs the risks, uh, the benefits outweigh the risks. Uh, I, I'm being very pragmatic here. I think whatever we do, we are never going to be able to completely do away with the risks. It is, it is um, going to be there. But I think given, given that the opportunity we have here is that it's, it's, it's early on in the, in the trajectory of, of, this, uh, of this field, and we have a real opportunity here. So our arguments around decolonizing the design and, build, and, and the evaluation and, and so on of, of these technologies is sort of one way to think about how can we really take the benefits that these kind of technologies can potentially offer while trying to minimize uh, the risks. I mean, to be honest, you know, we have um, examples on both sides, right? We know um, that there are teenagers who saw self-harm posts on uh, Instagram and then they took their life. We also know how someone posted on Facebook that they are experiencing a crisis and then a friend or, or a family member was able to connect with them and prevent that from happening. So, you know, we have evidence on, on both sides um, of, of what is possible and what is dangerous. I think we are at a point, like Sachin was saying, it is our responsibility to think about how do we go forward from here. Um, Regulation, personally, I think is one path forward um, to, to tackle some of those challenges. And so is essentially a ground up approach where so the next generation of digital mental health researchers and practitioners, we center our approaches on a decolonial um, uh, a method or an approach so that we are thinking about these risks from the very early on instead of, you know, five or 10 years later, where we look back and, and we realize that we got it all wrong from the beginning. One thing I've been thinking about, um, and this ties into my own research, you know, talking with people who are struggling with mental health and using some of these systems is, well, this is these are massive stakeholders. There's massive like design questions and big picture questions. But for folks who are just navigating these systems um, as experts yourselves, like what? What, what would you say? Like, obviously we're gonna put resources in this episode in terms of mental health and crisis lines and things like that. But besides creating more resources, in terms of helping or navigating these systems, 
um, what can just everyday people who are struggling with mental health do? So in some ways they don't get taken advantage of these systems or so that they find themselves in situations where the systems are just not helping them or actively harming them. Yeah, I think I think that's a fantastic question, right? And I think that there's a couple different, I mean, there's a couple different approaches, right? One is to, I mean, make use of the kinds of resources that exist that are recommended by search engines, right? So, um, like like um, national crisis lines, right? Trans Lifeline, um, Trevor Project, like there's a bunch of different helplines that people can take advantage of, right? There's also new tools that help people get connected with therapists that fit their identity-based needs, right? Um, but I think, but you're right, right? I think that particularly for someone who is experiencing mental health struggles, it is really difficult to find, like, to find, like, to be able to find resources that work for you. Our, our own research talks about this, right? So I think another thing that's really, really important, both from like an individual side as well as from a um, like tech company algorithmic side is to make, ensure that like things like warm lines, things like peer support portals, right? Like I think those are some of the keywords that individuals in distress can search for um, to find like care that is safe for what they're like for their needs and for what they're looking for. And just to to um, to explain what some of those things are, right? like so. Crisis helplines are generally staffed by like a wide variety of people. Warm lines are staffed by people with lived experience with mental health concerns. Generally, they, and of course, this is something that needs to be foregrounded, right? Something that should be really, really evident. Um, sometimes it's not, but generally they do not call the police when people are in crisis, particularly I think because the people who staff the line know what it's like to experience um, really severe mental health distress and like what engagements with quote unquote care um, that's actually harmful can look like. So I think from a person who's in distress from that side, searching for things like peer support. Um, in fact, one of my like mentors and friends, Stephanie Lynn Kaufman Pimkulu is someone who taught me a lot about this, right? That like peer support can be really, really incredible, um, particularly when this like the state is not there for us, um, when someone is in need of, of um, help. Additionally, warm lines, like I think some of those are some of the keywords to search for when someone's in distress, if they're looking for things that are outside of the typical like medical clinical establishment when it comes to care. We've talked about a lot of really deep and difficult topics in this conversation today. And so something that we'd like to close this conversation with is a little bit of the opposite, something that's a little bit more um, bright and cheerful and hopeful leaning. And so um, for each of you, I'm wondering what is something that you are feeling hopeful about in the space of decolonial digital mental health? Okay, I can. Um, so, you know, the last about two to two and a half years, the pandemic has been difficult, right? It's been, it's been difficult for me personally in different ways, but nowhere close to some of the difficulties that I'm sure other people have experienced. One positive thing though that I see is a more open dialogue around mental health. Um, that is happening, I'm seeing in person, um, I'm seeing that happen on the internet and in other digital spaces. I'm hopeful that this is not just a temporary thing. It is here to stay because we need that dialogue. We need it because um, there is a long way to go in terms of destigmatizing these experiences. And that goes hand in hand with some of the goals um, that we chart out in, in a de decolonial mental health um, view or perspective, which is not thinking of it as a source of shame or a stigma, 
but thinking of it as yet another experience. And then looking to our community as community members, as allies, how do we support that person to um, go through that experience? I'm hopeful that uh, a lot of, we are not going back to 2019, I guess, for better or worse, but on a positive note, I hope we continue this dialogue going forward around mental health. Um, I can go next. I think very similarly. Um, so like I mentioned, uh, in, in my youth, I was a Tumblr and Reddit user. I would post on all the, the mental health communities, right? And and I think that, so maybe you can call me a part of the old guard, right? But I think that like one of the things that's really great that I've seen during the pandemic is that like on TikTok, right, on um, Twitter, right, on different forms of social media, suddenly I'm seeing, and I mean, I've been researching this for many years now, right? I'm seeing an awareness around how culture influences our responses, right, to, I mean, collective trauma, right, to how we understand and how we experience mental illness. I'm seeing a greater awareness of that in spaces that I never expected to see it, right? Um, and I think, and I think there is a, there's a complication, right, of the narrative that mental illness should only look a certain way. And I, and I, and I think it's really hopeful for me to see that even like kids, youth, right, like adolescents, people who are young, college students, right, are having these conversations about how mental health does not always need to look like what the DSM prescribes it to be. And that gives me a lot of hope for what the future of treatment can look like for um, people who have experienced symptoms that they've never seen represented before. So adding on to what was said, um both by Munmun and Sachin, I would say uh, I've I've certainly been really hopeful just thinking about how um, willing and open the ATI community to so the scholarly community has been uh, to our work. And I think that says something about just how willing uh, people are to take on different perspectives to try to understand where knowledge com comes from and whose knowledge counts, right? And um, what are partial perspectives that we all have and not just people who are in the room, people who are outside, people across the world. That's been really amazing to see. And I really hope that that trend continues just um, being more and more willing to see where knowledge is created, whether it's in the, the topic of the research that we're looking at, but also from the scholarly perspectives that we take. I think one of the powerful things about the work that you three are doing both individually and collectively is opening that door for more conversations, more voices being represented um, and continuing to you know, take the risk to have these conversations that don't always fall in with the status quo and sometimes actively go against the status quo um, in these conversations. So uh, thank you <laughs> for the work that you're doing. Um, and also thank you for joining us today. We will make sure to link the paper in the show notes and talk a bit more about it during our intro and outro. But for now, thank you three for joining us. We want to thank Sachin, Moon Moon, and Neha again for joining us today for this wonderful panel conversation. And Dylan, as somebody who is also researching a lot about digital mental health in some different contexts, I would love to hear your initial reactions to this conversation. Yeah, I thought it was a great conversation, <laughs> partially because these are people that I cite um, all the time in the papers that I'm currently writing. Um, so it was a real pleasure to uh, be able to, to um, talk and to learn. Um, and uh, I think in a lot of ways, some of what they are currently publishing about decolonial digital mental health 
um, will work its way <laughs> into my own work and my own uh, theories, especially the work that I'm doing right now around um, uh, suicide bereavement and suicidality, um, which is a space um, where there's some support and some research on, but it's still um, folks are figuring out how to do that research well. And so I think one of the things that I'm um, gleaning from this conversation that I'm hoping to put into practice is questions around methodology um, and the methodology that we use. Like, where can computation be used? Where can it be uh, successful and ethical and um, all of that when it comes to digital mental health, measuring digital mental health and uh, monitoring and like implementing design? And where might there be barriers or where might there be some uh, hidden you know privileged value systems that are being embedded within that measurement itself that may lead to um, active harm <laughs> in some cases of how we do our research and so um, those methods and how we implement them um, is something that I'm going to continue to reflect on both in that computational but then also in that qualitative of like what questions do we ask in the first place and how do we represent um, voices more uh, generally and represent just more voices. <laughs> um, so just uh, that's that's a little bit about what I'm thinking about and how I'm thinking about and even applying this stuff. What about you? I think I'm actually uh, having a bit of a similar reflection as you and the phrase that you used um, about like which questions should we ask in the first place. I'm, I'm thinking along similar lines, but instead of the questions that we're asking, it's like the systems that we're designing and which systems are appropriate to design in the first place. And mental health is a really interesting space when you apply it to the digital world because I feel like there's it's easy to get really hyped about its potential, like with Facebook's um, predictive mental health machine learning algorithms that they've been working on that we talked to Stevie Chancellor about a little bit in a previous episode that has amazing potential to be this this really wonderful system that helps people predict or helps Facebook predict if people need resources or additional help. But as we discussed in that episode, there's a lot of potential for harm that is unintended as a consequence to deploying such a system, especially for people who might not want it. And I think about that when it comes to a lot of ways to digitize our mental health care for people. And I was just really, um, really hopeful, but also unsure about my own feelings when we were talking about the pros and cons of applying technology to mental health in the first place. Because I also totally agree with everybody on this panel that there are some amazing affordances to the digital mental health care world, especially when it comes to platforms for people to discuss their symptoms and their experiences with one another and to not feel so alone. That honestly, in my personal opinion, I think might be the single most um, powerful modern technology that um, exists today for for digital mental health. But then I think about a lot of these more predictive systems and these algorithmic systems that have to rely on data and aggregating users and making assumptions about people. And that feels like dangerous waters <laughs> to me. And I, I feel like that has a lot of potential, but has also a lot of potential for harm just as much as it does good. So I, I am very, very grateful for 
the strides that are being made in the digital mental health world for some of these modern technologies to combat some issues that people previously didn't have um, solutions or remedies for pre-internet. But I'm also just, I'm feeling a little bit concerned about where some of this hype could take us that could lead to harm. I'm glad you brought up our um, conversation with Stevie, our interview with Stevie, because I see a lot of similar topics being brought up in this interview. Um, The first of which is the fact that we haven't figured out mental health generally, right, in our society in terms of social support, in terms of um, also like unequal access. Um, And so to now bring the technology and the machine learning to be embedding these values and these systems uh, while we're trying to put them in partnership, but also translate some of the stuff from the non-digital space and these social structures that we haven't figured. It's just, it's a lot. Um, And this includes some of the colonial and and decolonial considerations as well um, about power and how power plays out in both technology, but also in the social world um, beyond that in the mental health support world. Another thing that came up both in our conversation with Stevie and in this conversation is that at this point, we're kind of at a point of no return. Like it's not a question of if there's going to be this world of digital mental health or if algorithms are going to be used. They're already deployed. They're already being used. It's a question of how they're going to be used and how they're going to be built. Um, And so the conversation in, in this conversation was very, it sounded very pragmatic, um, which I really appreciated. And the question of, well, how do we put these things into practice? And I think based on the work that they're doing, the work that um, some of uh, you know my lab mates are doing, it's a very live question of how to do any of this well, which is what we come back to is like, well, okay, how do we actually do this pragmatically? Um, and I, I think there's some, um, maybe not clear solutions from the work that uh, these three authors and their labs are presenting, but also um, ways that we can simply think about these things differently. Um, And uh, again, I think that's a real power in the work that they're publishing as well. How how can we twist how we think of these things and um, either make new assumptions or you know, just not make the assumptions that um, can cause harm out as we're deploying these systems. Yeah, hearing you say that made me reflect a bit on, I feel like I've been really focused on the word scale in our episodes this year for some reason. That's like the question that I keep coming back to. And maybe it's because I've been working in an industry context. I, I Actually, I don't know if I love scale. I think I just live in scale. So I am constantly reminded of it. You do love discussing <laughs> scale. <laughs> yeah, I, I honestly, I, you know, upon reflection now, I feel like it might be because I, I've been so deeply embedded in industry for the last like eight months that it's just been like beaten into me to think about how to scale solutions. And when it comes to mental health and these types of technologies that we're discussing in this episode, and especially like local experiences and lived personal individual experiences, I just get so wrapped up in this tension between lived experience and scale because I know personally, if I have like an individual therapist who's working with me on a mental health issue that I have, 
that is so incredibly unique to me, the things that I'm going to need for treatment or for care or for support are so incredibly unique to me. Even if a sibling of mine was experiencing the same exact mental health struggle as I was, I think they would need entirely different care than me. And now when we try to take technology and create some sort of scalable solution that averages people's experiences and needs for support and uh, mediation and care, I just, I really feel a little bit pessimistic about technology's capacity to do this. <laughs> but I, I also see the potential for some really incredible um, interventions that could happen at scale also to help people and to provide support for people. So that's sort of, yeah, that's where I'm sitting. I think and I'm still, I'm living in this tension between scalability and local independent or individual lived experiences. And I think that tension will always exist in digital mental health. I don't think it's going anywhere. Absolutely. I think these are questions that we're going to be asking for a long time to come. Uh, but for more information on today's show, please visit the episode page at RadicalAI.org. There you'll also find, as we referenced in the episode, you'll find um, some of the resources, including this awesome paper that we were highlighting in this conversation. And if you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. You can catch our regularly scheduled episodes on the last Wednesday of every month with some bonus episodes in between, perhaps. Join our conversation on Twitter at Radical AI Pod. And as always, stay radical. Mm-hmm.